What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, Tuesdays, 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern, on Pacifica Affiliates WXOJLPFM, Northampton, Massachusetts, and KWMD in Kasilof and Anchorage, Alaska. Produced by Freedom Center and the Icarus Project, streaming, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Thanks for joining us today on Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Today, my guest is Allison Bass. Uh, Allison is a professor of journalism at Mount Holyoke College. She's a former medical writer for the Boston Globe and is a Pulitzer-nominated journalist. She's the author of Side Effects, a prosecutor, a whistleblower, and a best-selling antidepressant on trial about um, GlaxoSmithKline and Paxil. Thank you for joining us today on Madness Radio, Allison Bass. It's a pleasure to be with you. Your book is um, getting a lot of really good reviews, and I would recommend it for people both who are interested in, in antidepressants and policy and legal issues, but especially just it's a, it's a good read. It's definitely more like a crime thriller, the way in which you were able to dig into the facts uh, behind corruption around Paxil and antidepressant uh, clinical research. Tell us how you got um, interested in this. How did you first get connected to the, to the case and get involved and then end up writing the book? Well, I was a uh, longtime mental health reporter for the Boston Globe, and in the mid-90s, I received an anonymous phone call uh, from a woman, um, and when I returned the call, she said she was an assistant research administrator at Brown University, and that she had in her possessions documents showing that the department was misrepresenting data on two clinical trials, one of which involved Paxil. Uh, for the treatment of depression in adolescence. And she, she had a number of other allegations to share with me as well. And I met with her and saw the documents um, and interviewed a lot of people and ended up writing a series of articles in the Boston Globe uh, about Dr. Martin Keller and shenanigans in billing and research in his Department of Psychiatry at Brown. But I wasn't able to pin down the allegations about um, the Paxil clinical trial. And it wasn't until uh, nine years later when the New York State Attorney General's office sued GlaxoSmithKline for basically deceiving patients and um, doctors about the safety and effectiveness of Paxil that I put the two together and realized I remembered what Donna Howard, the assistant research administrator at Brown, had told me almost nine years prior. Um, And I quickly found out that the brainchild behind the uh, state attorney general's lawsuit was another woman by the name of Rose Firestein, an assistant attorney general, and uh, started talking to her. And I realized there was a great story here because we had the story of uh, two women who were basically exposing the deception behind the making of this best-selling drug, Paxil. And Rose Firestein had found that basically GlaxoSmithKline had withheld negative findings about Paxil. Not only that it wasn't effective, it was no more effective than a placebo or a sugar pill in treating adolescents and children for depression, but that it also increased the risk of suicidal thoughts and behaviors in some children and adolescents. And this, was, this information was um, suppressed during the 90s by GlaxoSmithKline. And that's why they sued GlaxoSmithKline. So you were contacted in the, in the 90s by this whistleblower? Yes. And then it was basically later that kind of more information came to light and the lawsuit 
from the uh, New York Attorney General created a, a context for you to connect the whistleblower with that case and get that information that information out. Now, tell us a little bit about um, GlaxoSmithKline and and Paxil because we're talking about billions of dollars that are at at stake here. This is one of the most um, successful pills that's in the in the market. And Glaxo, like other pharmaceutical companies, really rely on these blockbuster medications, these blockbuster products for their profits. Well, that's right. I mean, the, all of the antidepressants, including Paxil, Prozac, Zoloft, Celexa, they're still among the top um, five classes of drugs sold in the United States today, and they were block, have been blockbuster drugs since the early 90s. Um, and the reason why they sell so much is because even though they were approved by the FDA in the late 80s, early 90s, just for the treatment of depression in adults, but GlaxoSmithKline began, and other uh, makers of these antidepressants, convinced doctors to prescribe these drugs off-label for unapproved uses in children and adolescents and also for other unapproved conditions. Um, and they did so by funding these clinical trials in which data was misrepresented and hid. In other words, they, there were a number of clinical trials that found that these drugs were no more effective than a placebo in treating children and adolescents but they never published those trials. Instead, they published only those trials which purported to show that these antidepressants were effective. Uh, and they also, in those trials, they suppressed information about the um, increased risk of suicidal thoughts and behaviors. So they basically deceived the American public about the safety and effectiveness, effectiveness of these antidepressants. And it wasn't until the Attorney General's office in New York sued GlaxoSmithKline and settled the case that this got a lot of publicity and uh, people began to be aware and the prescribing doctors began to be aware that these drugs were either were not as safe or effective as the drug companies said they were. So the action by the New York Attorney General's office was really kind of the turning point in the public perception of antidepressants. I mean, today we have um, these black box warnings, but people should remember that before all of this happened, there was kind of this sort of miracle drug aura around the antidepressants. It still exists to some degree, but that's been tarnished somewhat. But the idea that these drugs could be actually leading to suicidal thoughts or that there actually could be corruption going on or that the science wasn't sound, these were all new ideas that hadn't been accepted until this landmark lawsuit started to gain ground and become successful from the uh, the New York Attorney General. That's exactly right. And it wasn't until after uh, the New York Attorney General's office sued GlaxoSmithKline that the FDA finally put black box warnings on these drugs, saying that they did increase the risk of suicidal thoughts and behaviors in children. And then they later put the same black box warnings on for young adults, that there is this increased risk of suicidal thoughts and behaviors um, in, among young adults taking the antidepressants as well. So there was a, you know, it wasn't until all this happened that um, uh, people became aware that the miracle drugs, the wonder drugs of the 90s were not so, in fact, wonderful. And that's a really disturbing fact about antidepressants because uh, it, it's one thing to say, okay, they don't work any better than a placebo, than a, than a sugar pill. But it's another thing to say they don't work any better than a placebo and a sugar pill. And they can cause the very problem that they're 
treated, they're prescribed for, which is that these are antidepressants. So we're dealing with depression and often people have suicidal thoughts and the antidepressants are seen as kind of anti-suicide treatment. They're seen as a, as a, as a response to help people who might be at risk of suicide. And that's one of the things that's most shocking about these, uh, the medications that the actual way in which they can lead to suicide and suicidal thoughts was something that was suppressed by the um, the research in the way that your book talks about. That's right. I mean, I want to just stress that for some people, um, these drugs do help lift the fog of depression, particularly for older adults. Like I said, they haven't been found to be effective in children and adolescents, but for adults older, the eight, um, older than 25, there is clinical trial research showing that they are more effective than a placebo, and they have helped people. But Everybody's brain metabolism is different, and in some people, they actually increase the risk of suicidal thoughts and behaviors. Well, hasn't there also been research around Prozac and the way in which it was exaggerated? And it's true. I mean, I focused on Paxil, but in my book, I talk about Prozac and Zoloft and the other uh, what are known as SSRI antidepressants for selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Um, so that's Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, Celexa. Uh, and some other drugs, um, they all increase the risk of suicidal thoughts and behaviors in some people. And they are not, um, except for Prozac, none of them have been found to be at all effective in children and adolescents. And even the studies done on Prozac are, are under dispute right now. So it's all of the antidepressants, and, they, and, and there's evidence that the drug makers, that the makers of these other antidepressants also suppressed negative findings about their drugs. What was it that motivated the New York Attorney General to start going after the corruption at GlaxoSmithKline with these these studies? Well, that's a that's a really good question because up until then uh, they really hadn't taken on the pharmaceutical industry in terms of um, defrauding patients and consumers. It was because of this woman Rose Firestein, very maverick, unusual uh, newcomer to um, the Attorney General's office. She um, had worked, before she came to the Attorney General's office, she had worked for um, first legal aid and then a national rights organization that tried to protect people, uh, youngsters who are in foster care, who weren't getting the attention and care they needed, were being neglected and abused in the foster care system. And she had discovered, um, and others had discovered as well, and they were suing state DSS, state foster care systems, because these youngsters were also being over-medicated on very powerful psychoactive drugs like Risperdal, Seroquel, Cyprexa, and Paxil, Prozac, um, and Zoloft. And so she became aware that um, these drugs were being over-prescribed for this very vulnerable foster care population. And they sued a number of, um, she helped a number of um, people sue the state uh, foster care systems because of this problem. And then she came to the Attorney General's office and she wanted to look into this because she felt that doctors were not getting the full story about these drugs. But it was because of her unusual background that she basically talked um, her bosses into letting her um, look into this and came up with um, the fact that GlaxoSmithKline was selectively publishing only positive, what purported to be positive findings about Paxil and suppressing the negative findings. And she also discovered that the one study that was purported to show a positive result was in fact 
um, didn't that the data did not was did not represent what they were saying their claims and this is a Paxil study that I looked into in further uh, depth and in which I found that there was actually skewing of data to make Paxil look more effective and safer than it really was and this was the study that was spearheaded by Marty Keller at Brown which Donna had Howard had told me about all those years ago. So all the pieces began to fit together, and I realized there was a great story here. So with the, um, the situation in, in foster care homes, essentially what you have is a, is a product, um, psychiatric medication, whether it's antidepressants or antipsychotics, that there's so much hype and there's so much positive advertising and there's so much uh, promotional publicity going on that it very, very quickly moves into dangerous um, abuse. What Rose found out was that um, people were using these drugs as kind of chemical straitjackets to control their behavior um, when they acted out uh, under perfectly uh, legitimate situations. I mean, you know, if you were being neglected and abused, you'd hacked out too. Um, and the sad thing is, is that it's cheaper for doctors uh, to um, prescribe a powerful psychoactive drug than to ensure that these kids get the kind of um, help, therapeutic help they need. Yeah, I think, I mean, the calculation is cheaper maybe in the short run, but in the long run, you end up having, you know, greater dependence on the system and maybe more hospitalizations yep. or or that kind of thing, but that's not figured in in the short-term well, calculation. True. And it, it parallels with the situation in, in, in nursing homes where, again, you have this huge, huge use of psychiatric drugs basically as a control tool to keep people quiet and to make them more mm -hmm. manageable. And it is a quick fix that's, that's used um, as a short-term way of saving money that creates longer-term problems. Now, now Rose Firestein, so what, she was very interested in the foster care situation. What, did she have any personal connection with that issue or what is it, how did she get involved with that herself? She worked for an organization called Children's, uh, National Children's Rights. And they are a national organization that comes in and provides legal, legal help to um, people in various states who are, who are trying to make things better for uh, children particularly vulnerable children like those who are in foster care. So she just ended up on some of these cases and helping, and she would take affidavits from some of these foster care, um, these children in foster care who were being over-medicated, and it, it really opened her eyes to the dangers of these drugs and how they were being over-utilized. And this is still going on. There's a big case going on in Florida where um, a seven-year-old boy hung himself after being over-prescribed. I think it was um, one of the antipsychotics, Cyprexa or Seroquel. Um, and this keeps happening where doctors who really aren't, uh, don't know about these children and don't care are just prescribing drugs to, to work as chemical straitjackets. So it's still going on. She was among the first to bring it to the public eye. So she went to work for the New York State Attorney General's office, which at the time the State Attorney General was Elliot Spitzer, who was really someone who was a maverick and was very much challenging um, corporate interests, uh, banking interests, Wall Street interests, as well as the pharmaceutical uh, companies. So, so that created an opportunity for her to pursue her research and to investigate further what was going on. That's exactly right. I mean, he, um, Elliot Spitzer was 
one of the first uh, New York Attorney General's office who really um, took on big corporate interests uh, for the little guy, and he had taken on um, Wall Street, Merrill Lynch, for the conflicts of interest in the fact that they were not disclosing their conflicts to stockholders. Um, it's a, that's a long, complicated story, but basically there was a lot of corruption going on, and people who owned stock were getting taken advantage of because they didn't realize that the banks were touting stocks that they also owned, um, and they were not disclosing these conflicts, so people would invest in stocks, and it turns out the stocks were no good. So um, he took them on, and then he was interested in also some of these conflicts of interest in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and then when Rose came on, she they, their interest dovetailed, and Rose talked her, you know, her bosses and um, Elliot Spitzer into go, you know, suing GlaxoSmithKline because she had found, as I said before, that they were withholding negative uh, findings and they were defrauding the American public. And what was so interesting is that she was the one who came up with the idea of using New York's consumer fraud statute to sue GlaxoSmithKline. That had never been done before. And it is now being done by many other state attorney general's offices and the federal prosecutors who are saying, you know, you are defrauding consumers when you suppress negative information about drugs. And that's been especially around the Medicaid billing, the way in which state Medicaid has been frauded by the atypical um, antipsychotics. Is that right? Exactly. That's right. So they're using, they're taking a page from Rose Firestein's book in suing antipsychotic makers who, again, suppress negative findings about these antipsychotics like Seroquel, Cyprexa, Risperdal. That's right. So, so your book, Side Effects, A Prosecutor, a Whistleblower, and a Best-Selling Antidepressant on Trial, really chronicles, uh, it looks at, the turning point when suddenly the, the situation is kind of blown wide open with exposure of pharmaceutical company corruption and conflict of interest. And a lot of what we're seeing today with the Grassley hearings, with the um, uh, conflict of interest investigative reporting that's going on, really started with this issue of Paxil, GlaxoSmithKline, and Rose Firestein's work with the uh, Attorney General of New York's uh, lawsuit. That's right. I mean, in fact, um, Grassley's aides, I had sent a my book to them in the spring of last year. So that may have propelled some of their interest in doing these conflict of interest investigations, and they've done a fine job in terms of exposing doctors who are on the take um, from drug companies and who have not disclosed their conflicts um, to uh, their universities and to the National Institutes of Health. And the problem is these are the doctors that are doing the research on these drugs. So they're getting hundreds of thousands of dollars, in some cases millions of dollars, from the drug companies. At the same time, they're publishing research touting these, these companies' drugs. And that's a blatant conflict of interest and needs to be disclosed. In fact, I would argue that these, these particular medical researchers who are on the take should not be allowed to do research and publish research about the drugs being made by companies who are giving them money on the side. That's simply not, uh, there's a lot of research that shows that uh, getting a lot of money, getting any kind of money, skews people's judgment and makes them want to do favors for the person who's giving them the money, and it shouldn't be allowed. And these are not just um, researchers that are here and there, you know, sort of in the corners and nooks and crannies of research institutions and universities, these are actually the most prominent psychiatrists in the country and in the world that we're talking about. I mean, Martin Keller, the chair of psychiatry 
at Brown University. That's one of the most prestigious uh, universities around, and this is kind of the gold standard for what good science and good research is supposed to be. And what's happened since uh, the investigations from the New York State Attorney General's office and the lawsuit successful against GlaxoSmithKline is that really the climate has really changed somewhat in the U.S. We're seeing much, much more, almost on a weekly basis, we're seeing things in the media about these issues and about the conflicts of interest and about the corruption in pharmaceutical uh, drug trials and psychiatric drugs. And before, I remember when Freedom Center got started in 2001, we were talking about these issues, but it just hadn't broken into the public consciousness and it hadn't really reached that point of of taking off and having more uh, mainstream investigations going on and broader public attention. And so your book really uh, talks about that moment in history when that change took place. Let's talk about the trial itself because you get into a lot of detail with what happened and how the lawyers for GlaxoSmithKline tried to just do everything that they could to make sure that they didn't lose that case and that this information about their fraud didn't come out. What were some of the highlights of the of the trial itself? What happened was is that um, they sued GlaxoSmithKline and GlaxoSmithKline uh, in federal court and GlaxoSmithKline Attorneys tried to get it thrown out several times. Um, they they argued that it didn't uh, that the FDA had jurisdiction here um, because the FDA approved drugs and that therefore the New York State Attorney General's office couldn't be suing GlaxoSmithKline because the FDA had jurisdiction. But as it turned out, I mean New York State is the one who <clears throat> licenses doctors to perform medicine. And what Rose Firestein and her colleagues were arguing is that um, by suppressing negative information about these drugs, doctors cannot perform their uh, duties as doctors um, because they don't have the full story. So it's very much the purview of the states to be involved to make sure doctors can um, prescribe drugs and in a, in a uh, informed, um, appropriate way. So she um, kept it from being thrown out in federal court, and it became clear that uh, they had a really good case, the New York Attorney General's office had a really good case, and that it was a case of consumer fraud. So GlaxoSmithKline felt that they better settle, or you know, it could be far worse if they f- kept fighting it. Um, you know, damages would go up, it would get more expensive, um, and, you know, they didn't want to lose the case. So they ended up settling it at the end of the summer of 2004. And in return, they paid, a, um, I think it was a $4 million or $5 million fine. They also, and this is even more important, they agreed to post the results of all their clinical trials on a publicly available website. Not just the positive findings, but all of them. And this led to a law in Congress requiring all drug companies to post all of their results, not just the positive findings. Um, And so that was a really important first step toward transparency and full disclosure. The problem with that is is that most um, people get their information from journalists who get their information from medical journals. And that's where most doctors get their information. Um, and medical journals still don't um, publish as many. They, they're much more likely to pu- publish positive findings. And drug companies don't want the negative findings published, so they don't submit them to the journals. So you're still not getting the full story about um, dr- new drugs. And this is not just with the antidepressants. This, is, this happened with Vioxx. 
where the negative findings about Vioxx, its increased risk of causing heart attacks in many people, were not disclosed in the medical journals. Um, it, it's happened with um, uh, Avandia, an anti-diabetes drug, Procrit, an anti-anemia drug, Vitorin, an anti-cholesterol drug. So this keeps going on where um, the full story about the safety and effectiveness of new drugs is not disclosed to the American public. But there have been some very important first steps towards reform. Well, you mentioned the settlement of around $5 million, and what it seems like is happening, because there have been other settlements with, uh, there was a big settlement around Zyprexa with Eli Lilly, and um, it seems like what's happening is that if these results and if the litigation can be delayed and if the settlements can actually be relatively small compared to the billions of dollars of profit that are being made, it seems like what's happening is that the risks of being exposed and litigation have been kind of incorporated almost into the product cycle itself because now that we've got these um, antidepressants, the SSRIs, that their reputation is kind of going down, there's research and then there's new drugs that are coming out and kind of the process sort of starts all over again. I mean, that's sort of what happened with um, the atypicals uh, was that they were originally touted as being these miracle alternatives to the earlier, older drugs. They were supposed to be more effective and, and safer, and then that gets exposed, but then there are newer drugs that are coming down the line. So in a, in a sense, even though the information is coming out, even though the litigation is uh, successful, the impact on the industry is kind of minimal in some ways. Well, it is, it's true that, I mean, because of the success of the New York State Attorney General's lawsuit and others like it, federal prosecutors, particularly now that the, uh, with the Obama administration, um, they're getting more aggressive in going after the um, pharmaceutical companies for um, defrauding people. And they're, they're assigning much, much more, um, much higher fines, like the Cyprexa fine was, I, I'm trying to think it was, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars against Eli Lilly. And so that does have impact. Um, and they're, you know, they're continuing to sue. Federal prosecutors are suing other um, uh, antidepressant makers and other makers of antipsychotics. And so that will take a toll. And so pharmaceutical companies are being forced. So they're being forced to disclose all of the results and to not... Um, defraud people with just half the story. So, I mean, there is some impact where I think pharmaceutical companies are more careful not to, um, you know, hype the medications and, uh, you know, to tell the full story. But you're absolutely right that there's new drugs coming on and that they're, um, and they're still not um, publishing the negative findings that they get. They only publish the positive findings. So that still continues. And it remains a problem. I mean, there's an, a med legislation that's been proposed that would, um, that's actually in the current health care reform bill that would require drug companies to disclose all payments they make to doctors and medical researchers so that the American public know um, where there's a conflict of interest and so that they know if they go to a doctor who, you know, hands out an antipsychotic or an antidepressant, um, you know, they can look up and see, oh, well, this guy got, you know, $100,000 from the maker of the drug that he's prescribing. I'm not sure I trust him. I'm going to go to somebody else. So 
there is, you know, if this law gets passed, that will be a big step forward towards transparency so that the American public is more aware of where these conflicts of interest um, reside and of where the pharmaceutical companies are not telling the full story. If you are just joining us, this is Madness Radio, and our guest today is Allison Bass. She's a Pulitzer-nominated journalist and professor of journalism at Mount Holyoke College, and she's the author of Side Effects, a prosecutor, a whistleblower, and a best-selling antidepressant on trial. Where do you think changes might take place with the uh, the scientific research? Because we're talking about a lot of studies that get published that are basically ghostwritten by pharmaceutical right. companies and a lot of the research that you know claims to be suggesting scientific effectiveness and uh, medical usefulness of medications is actually public relations tool of the pharmaceutical industry and in that doctors are kind of relying on what they think is science but is actually marketing to form an impression about um, about the products that they're providing to their patients. Right. Well, I think what needs to happen is that the um, medical centers, the places where this research takes place, need to, to stiffen their conflict of interest policies and say to doctors, if you are getting a certain amount of money, above a certain amount of money, 10000 20000 from a drug company, you cannot do research on their drugs. That's a conflict. Um, and they're also requiring them to disclose the money they get so that they, they will know if someone's making a whole lot of money uh, from a particular drug company, because that then taints their objectivity when they do research on these drugs. So those policies are very important. In addition, uh, Senator Grassley's uh, team has been putting pressure on the National Institutes of Health to enforce its own conflict of interest policies, which, by the way, has been on the books since 1995, but they never enforced it. They um, basically would give all these this lucrative research funding to doctors who had these conflicts and they didn't care, they didn't know, they didn't care if they weren't disclosing this conflict of interest uh, to them. But because of the pressure being put on NIH by Congress, um, they are being more careful about not giving uh, research funding to uh, tainted doctors and medical researchers. So that's really important and that pressure has to continue. One of the interesting aspects of this is that it's coming out of the New York Attorney General's office. Um, and the New York Attorney General was Elliot Spitzer, who, as we know, went down in a scandal. He was paying for prostitutes, and this became publicized. And and um, then he was uh, forced to resign in, in disgrace. And it seems like there's a little bit more to that story than just uh, a, a stupid man who you know gets caught doing something bad, that actually he had alienated a lot of very powerful interests and made a lot of enemies. And um, that do you think that that played a role in his downfall? Yes, I do. I think that the uh, Republican administration, this was at the time when the Bush administration was still in power, and there were a lot of very uh, powerful conservative interests that were very angry at Spitzer because he had taken on not only the pharmaceutical industry, but Wall Street and all the banks. And it was one of those banks that um, tipped off um, the Department of Justice, someone in the Department of Justice, that there was these unusual electronic money transfers um, from Spitzer and that they traced it to a uh, escort service. So if it had been somebody else, they probably would never have investigated, but they were interested in taking him down. Now, you know, Spitzer was incredibly stupid to A, go to a prostitute and B, you know, being a married man and B, um, paying for it through electronic money transfers that can be traced 
uh, by banks. Um, be that as it may, um, if he <laughs> if he had been someone other than who he was, I doubt they would have ever investigated it. Because there are plenty of politicians, um, Republicans as well as Democrats, who go to escort services, and there are plenty of banks that notice unusual um, activity on electronic fund transfers and then they just don't report it or they don't do anything and here comes along somebody who's prominent and has a lot of enemies and they decide to do something about it. That's right. That's my speculation. One of the things that's interesting about your your book is that you mentioned um, that these these drugs aren't just marketed in the U.S. They're marketed in Europe as well and it's it sounds like um, the European regulatory agencies were much more on the ball and got for example the suicide warning um, put on antidepressant packages and labels um, long before it was in the United States. What's your sense of, of that and how the international regulation is different than uh, the U.S. regulation? Well, there are certain countries in Europe that are uh, more stringent, um, but it, it's not always the case that all of them are, and in some cases they're laxer. Um, in Germany, for instance, they um, found evidence that uh, there was evidence from very early studies of Prozac in Germany that it increased the risk of suicidal thoughts and behaviors in adults. So Germany refused to approve Prozac for many years. And then when it did so, it said, well, you also have to give them, if you're going to give them Prozac, you also have to give them a kind of Valium-like pill so that it would reduce the the jitteriness, the the sense of feeling like you're going to jump out of your skin that often leads people to want to kill themselves. Um, So Germany was being more um, stringent. Um, However, a lot of other countries weren't, and it was only um, a year or two before the FDA uh, put their black box warnings on that the English uh, equivalent to the FDA did the same. They took, they did take the lead here um, in terms of banning the use of um, Paxil and some of the other SSRI antidepressants for use in children and adolescents. They took strong, they actually did take a stronger stand than the FDA, and they did it about a year or two before. Um, but it wasn't until um, the New York State Attorney General's office uh, sued GlaxoSmithKline. I mean, I think it was the same. They sued in June 2004, and I think that was it was the same month that the English regulatory uh, body uh, said that they were looking into Paxil as well. And then in that December, they actually banned the use of these antidepressants uh, for for uh, children and adolescents. So it was all happening around the same time, um, and so that they weren't that ahead of the curve in England. Uh, so. It, you know, it depends. I mean, in the 1960s, the FDA was was more stringent than some of the English um, regulatory agencies, and that's what kept thalidomide, that drug that um, pregnant women were being given and that produced birth defects. The FDA, that was um, approved for use in several European countries, um, but the FDA said, no, it, you know, we're not, ha- we're not sure about it. We're not approving it. So it did protect women in the United States. But in the 1980s and 90s, as I write about in my book, first the Reagan administration and then the first Bush administration gutted um, the FDA. They gutted the resources of this regulatory body, and they didn't have the money to do uh, the kind of vetting of new drugs that they needed. And that's when drug approvals started speeding up, and they began to get more money from the drug industry in user fees to fund their work. And that led to um, a sense that the FDA was beholden to the very industry that it was supposed to regulate. And that's a deregulation story that we see in, in 
banking, in the mm-hmm. housing market, and in, in environmental issues around polluting industries and medicine in, in general. It's just a, a very striking impact that the Reagan era kind of kicked off with a lot of the protections of the public just being undermined, and we're still seeing the the effects of that. Uh, we've been talking a lot about Paxil and especially the way in which it isn't as effective as it's claimed to be, and also the dangers of increasing um, suicide. And one of the things about Paxil too, and I, I think it should be talked about, is that you know the addiction issues with Paxil when it was first marketed. You know, there wasn't any recognized real problems with drawing. It wasn't considered a dependency-creating drug. But so many people that I've talked to, and this has become much more widely known, have extremely difficult times coming off of Paxil. It's sort of notorious for causing just just horrendous withdrawal effects when people try and come off of it, um, like electrical jolts to the brain. And that's something that's also been uh, suppressed, and now it's coming more more to light and has the investigations that you're writing about how that played a role in that? Um, not on the withdrawal part, but actually you're absolutely right. It has a terrible, uh, people trying to withdraw from Paxil have a terrible time and often can't get off the drug as a result. Um, and that sometimes the withdrawal themselves uh, itself makes people suicidal. Um, what, what really made the difference with the withdrawal is that uh, a number of um, plaintiffs uh, sued GlaxoSmithKline. It became a class action suit, and I think that came out. I mean, it, there was a portion of that in Rose Firestein's uh, lawsuit, but um, it was the role of litigators, of civil litigators, that got that out to the public about the withdrawal problems. And, and I think the door was open to that litigation by this groundbreaking work that the New York State Attorney General Office yep, did. Yep. That definitely, and the fact that they proved that you could you could prove um, that uh, you could use a consumer fraud statute uh, to sue drug companies. So yes, it was definitely instrumental in 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 in, in giving uh, plaintiffs attorneys the um, the courage to go after drug companies. So that's very true. Something you also talk about in the book is the way in which patient advocacy groups, especially uh, NAMI, the National Alliance. Uh, for the mentally ill, have been so manipulated to become marketing arms of um, pharmaceutical companies. Tell us a little bit about that and how it plays a role here with Paxil and GlaxoSmithKline. Um, well, basically, the same um, source, Donna Howard, uh, who uh, worked at Brown, um, went to work at um, for the Rhode Island chapter of uh, NAMI, the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill, and uh, she discovered that... Um, the president of NAMI, the, of the national NAMI, was laundering money, was getting money from the drug companies to speak on behalf of their products, the antidepressants, because he himself was um, suffered from depression and had taken some of these drugs. But he failed to disclose the fact that he was getting all this money from drug companies when he talked about how wonderful uh, their drugs were. And uh, not only that, but he would launder the money through the local Rhode Island chapter where Donna worked um, so that it didn't look like the money was coming directly to him. Instead, it went to the non chapter and NAMI, the NAMI chapter there would write a check to, to this guy. So, and, and, and Donna also told me about, and it's still going on today, that NAMI gets um, a lot of its money from drug companies. So that it's not a particularly impartial source when it talks about how wonderful um, some of these uh, powerful psychotic 
drugs are. They're, they're incredibly well-funded by the pharmaceutical industry and continue to be. I think the Grassley um, hearings brought out that, that uh, NAMI receives something like 56% of its national budget from pharmaceutical company That's right. funding? That at least was what I found in my book uh, between 2002 and 2004 when they, published, um, when they published their annual reports that they were getting more than half of their um, entire budget was coming from the pharmaceutical um, companies. And this is just what we know about because it's been, um, there, there was an article, investigative piece that was done in Mother Jones magazine many years ago and it's been known especially in the consumer survivor movement, that, that NAMI is completely tainted by this conflict of interest, receiving lots of pharmaceutical company funding. But we had no idea that it was so, that it was so huge, that it was 56%. And that's only what we know so far. There could be other ways in which there's conflict of interest going on and manipulation going on. So you're, so you're saying that the, the head of NAMI was essentially a paid drug company marketing represent, representative and wasn't revealing that to anyone while they are presenting themselves as a uh, successful survivor um, story of how wonderful the drugs are and how I was able to recover as a result of these great products, but also not saying that I'm actually being paid to say this by the manufacturer of the product. Well, that's right. Jim McNulty, who was uh, president of the National Organization of NAMI from uh, 2002 to 2004, that's exactly what was going on, and I'm sure he's not the only one. He's just the one that I wrote about. Um, so, and, and, and what's a crying shame, because NAMI bills itself as the largest advocacy organization for people with mental illness and for their families, and these uh, people should um, they expect an impartial point of view. They expect a nonpartisan um, opinion from the people who are leading them. Um, what they don't expect is someone who's on the take and not revealing it. And NAMI, we should remember, is the, the most prominent patient advocacy group around mental health. I mean, they are the group that everyone goes to, law enforcement, uh, state, federal, um, politicians, journalists, when they want the sort of the perspective of the consumers, they are the prominent leading organization that is turned to. And I think it, hopefully that's changing somewhat. Um, but basically what it means is that you get a closed loop with no one who's really able to criticize uh, pharmaceutical companies and mainstream treatments and the assumptions behind the science. No one is able to really get into the public discourse because the uh, representation from the consumer side is already covered by this organization that is basically um, fronting for pharmaceutical company company interests. And there's it reminds me there's actually a, a very prominent um, patient advocate, consumer survivor advocate in Massachusetts who um, let out that he had actually been on a cruise, that there was a cruise ship that was paid for by some pharmaceutical company. It sounds Sounds pretty wild, but they actually do this as part of their marketing that they put people on on cruises, and um, that was um, something that they had done. And this is a very pro medication advocate in uh, Massachusetts, who again is considered one of the most prominent people that the media go to, and and uh, is sitting on committees and in hearings before. And then if you look at actually Nami's policies, I mean, it's very much couched, of course, in how do we get better treatment and. How do we help people the best way that we can? And there are some good things that they do. They they promote um, uh, funding for services and, and homeless agencies, and they're often on the right side of a lot of 
of issues, but throughout their policy is this constant assumption that the medications are needed, they're necessary, they're effective. That's what we have. Let's get more people on the medications. Let's force people on medications even. It's ironic that in the expose of the pharmaceutical drugs that have come out in the last several years, that the leading consumer organization hasn't played a role in that at all. They've actually been completely behind uh, the curve on it. They haven't been leading the charge or saying much of anything. And here's why. It's because they're actually getting funded by those very same very same interests. That's very true. Absolutely. Yeah. Allison, Allison, tell us about how the reviews have been for, for the book. Well, the book has gotten really good reviews um, in USA Today, the Boston Globe, New York Review of Books, the Washington Post called it long-form journalism at its best. Um, even medical journals like the New England Journal of Medicine um, and uh, medical blogs said that it read, one medical blogger said that it read like a John Grisham thriller, but told you everything you needed to know about how uh, the pharmaceutical companies uh, lie about science. Um, and it's, it recently had a great review in Nature Medicine, and even the American Journal of Psychiatry weighed in with a good review in April. Um, what's interesting, though, um, and this is how I think the pharmaceutical industry tries to squelch the book, um, in the very early days, they, there was a um, review in the Wall Street Journal by a guy who turns out was a, um, a defense attorney who works for the drug companies. In other words, he um, defends them against product liability lawsuits, the kind of lawsuits that I write about in the book. Um, and the Wall Street, that was just very inappropriate. The Wall Street Journal should not have turned to a uh, clearly biased source to write a review, and of course he panned the book. But like I said before, most of the, the reviews have been very positive. And what about the response? I, I think that the pharmaceutical companies, one of the things that they did when the black box warnings were actually put into effect was that they came back with this argument that says, well, you know, the suicide rates are going to go up uh, because people are using less antidepressants because they're scared to use them or doctors are scared to uh, prescribe them. And actually, this is sort of, of counterproductive from a patient standpoint because we're um, because we're dissuading people from actually getting the treatment and the help that they need. And that has been sort of the standard response that the drug companies have been putting out to a lot of this regulation. So what do you, what do you make of that? Well, there is no evidence um, currently of a link between the FDA black box warnings and um, an uptick in youth suicide rates in 2004 and 2005. So um, that's a spurious conclusion, but it's not, it's not, uh, really happening. I mean, there have been, um, I mean, like I said, the antidepressants are still among the top five classes of drugs sold in the United States today. Um, there may be some fewer prescriptions for uh, children, uh, particularly young children, which I think is all to the good. But like I said, there is no evidence that there is a connection between um, the black box warnings and an uh, increase in suicide rates. So that's a spurious claim. There has been no connection. But there has been some increase in suicide rates according to some research, but there are other reasons why that could be other than people aren't taking their medications. Well, see, there wasn't, you know, there was a slight uptick in suicide rates between 2003 and 2004, but that's before the black box warnings went into effect. So you cannot attribute them to the black box warnings. And that's where their, their claim is awry, goes awry. And there have been a number of articles in mainstream magazines really kind of sounding an alarm around suicide rates, and especially around college suicide and youth 
suicide. And that seems very tied into the pharmaceutical marketing because the push is, well, we have to get people treatment. These are people who are in trouble and they're not getting treatment. They're not getting help. And of course, then there's this equation between help, treatment, and medications. And so it seems like the marketing is really tied into a lot of the public right. awareness right. Of, of suicide. Right. And, you know, in fact, there was an analysis published in the Journal of the American Medical Association last fall that found that the rate of suicides among youth aged 10 to 19 actually fell by 5.3% between 2000 and and 2005. So again, that puts to, you know, uh, that basically belies the claims that there's an increase in suicide rates because there's not, and, and they're not tied to the FDA black box warnings at all. And I know with the Vioxx scandal, we do have a sense of the number of people, tens of thousands of people who died. Has there been any research or any estimates that you know of of the actual impact that um, antidepressant use and the suicides that could be related to, to antidepressant use has actually had on society? Well, there's, there is clinical research that shows that in the case of Paxil, there is a five-fold increase in the, in, in the risk of suicidal thoughts and behaviors among patients taking Paxil versus those taking placebo. And that's from the clinical trial results themselves. Okay, a five-fold increase in the risk of suicidal ideation, thoughts, and behaviors. And then, of course, there's, there's a lot of anecdotal information out there about people who committed suicide after taking the drugs. So we could be talking about tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah, I don't know what the, you know, I don't think anybody's actually done uh, a study that links actual suicides to the antidepressants um, because, first of all, that's the kind of, the drug companies would not benefit from a study, so they're not going to fund such a study, and that's, who, who's going to do it? I mean, right now, those kind of clinical trial studies are done by the drug companies, and they're supposed to be done by the drug companies. In fact, the FDA says you have to do these kind of safety studies once the drug is approved, but they don't do them um, because it doesn't behoove uh, to their interest that, to come up with studies that show that there are bad side effects. So they don't, they don't do these studies, and no one else does them. So a definitive study has not been done. Allison, we are just about out of time. You have a blog, and why don't you give us the web address for that and also tell us about uh, your book again. Okay, well, my uh, website and blog address is www.allison-bass.com, and you can find on that website all the reviews that have been done about my book, Side Effects of a Prosecutor, a Whistleblower, and a Best-Selling Antidepressant on Trial, along with my regular blog in which I talk about important um, issues in healthcare and discuss the flaws in our current system of drug research and development. And I think actually you recently did a little profile on your blog of the Freedom Center interviewing uh, Katie Simon. That's right, because uh, the work you do is very important and uh, very helpful to people with mental illness. Well, thanks a lot, Allison. It's been great having you on uh, Madness Radio. It's been my pleasure, too, Will. You've been listening to an interview with Allison Bass. Allison is a professor of journalism at Mount Holyoke College. She's a former medical writer for Boston Globe newspaper and is a Pulitzer-nominated journalist. Her book is called Side Effects, A Prosecutor, a Whistleblower, and a Best-Selling Antidepressant on trial, and you can get in touch with her and find out more at her website, including reading her blog, which is at www.allison-bass.com. That's about all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks a lot for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. 
Madness Radio broadcasts every Tuesday, 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern, on Pacifica Affiliates WXOJLPFM, Northampton, Massachusetts, and KWMD Kasilov and Anchorage, Alaska. Co-produced by peer-run mental health communities freedom-center.org and theicarusproject.net. Madness Radio is hosted by Will Hall. Music producer is John Rice, with technical assistance from Jeremy Lansman. Listen to our internet stream, podcasts, and show archives at madnessradio.net. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, to help get us broadcast on a station near you, or if you just want to share what's in your head, contact radio at madnessradio.net.